0: Hello. Welcome to this new podcast series from the Scottish Arts and Humanities Alliance, SAHA for short. SAHA brings together Scottish universities, the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and the Scottish Graduate School of Arts and Humanities to promote the contribution of arts and humanities to society. In this podcast series, we speak to a range of inspirational individuals who have experienced firsthand the value of arts and humanities in their lives and their careers. I am Dr. Christina Klopot and I will be the host for this podcast series. In this new SAHA conversation, we are joined by Christine Wilson, Interim Director of Research and Policy Insight at the British Council. An alumna of our SAHA member, the University of Edinburgh. Christine currently acts as an advisory board member for the University's Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities IASH. As it has become customary by now, in this Saha conversation, we ask Christine to reflect on her career trajectory. But we discuss other subjects also, such as her work on international cultural relations, decolonization and ongoing research exploring young people's ambitions and aspirations across the world. Thank you for joining us today, Christine.
1: My pleasure, Christina. Good to be here.
0: Just to start our discussion today, I wanted to ask you if you might be able to tell us a little bit about your educational background and your career trajectory.
1: Okay. So I moved to Edinburgh to come here to university in 1994. I came up initially planning to my MA, which is the degree you get at Scottish universities, obviously, in French and linguistics I think was what I set out to do Uh, but I found I didn't quite enjoy the French as much as I I thought I would and I switched and I actually switched a few times during my years at university so I came away with a sort of MA general arts in 1998 because I'd also covered classics I'd done a bit of work in archaeology so I was jumping around quite a lot and not really quite sure what I wanted to do and so the bit about a career trajectory in terms of what led me to the British Council where I am now was fairly circuitous. I actually worked for a while in a record shop in Edinburgh. I then uh, worked for a record company. I then moved into work in a Scottish political magazine where I worked as a journalist and an editor for a little while. And it was at that time, it was actually a friend of mine who was working at the British Council, drew my attention to a post that had just been advertised as a project officer in what was then we used to call governance, which was really around areas of interest in civil society, gender, and so on. And I think because of the work I've been doing at the magazine, where I'd written a lot about Scottish civil society and its interactions with Scottish politics, I was interested in the job, she spoke very highly of the British Council as a place to work. And that took me to the British Council, and that was in 2004. And I think since then, my, my career at the British Council has, has been on a fairly narrow path insofar as For a long time, I stayed in that area of work around civil society, but I got more interested over time in some of the bigger issues that we were addressing as the organisation and with our partners around the world. So that's when I first went back to education and I went back to the Open University actually to do a diploma in environmental policy. We were looking quite a lot Uh, climate change and I really wanted to get a grip on some of the policy issues internationally my work then changed again I got more interested in knowledge and research engagement and uh, knowledge exchange and how we should be doing more of that as an organization that generates a lot of data and I subsequently went back to the University of Ulster a few years ago to do a, a master's in social research skills, in particular focusing on uh, how undertaking research in conflict-affected areas. So I think my, I guess my initial educational background didn't really have a huge amount to do with where I ended up, but my education and career have then sort of intertwined
0: quite neatly over the last 10 years or so. It's amazing how you've uh, had this thirst for uh, learning and knowledge and um... Found new ways to nourish it through different degrees along the way. And actually, your connections with academic life haven't uh, stopped, as you mentioned, with the last degree, because you now sit on the board for the Institute of Advanced Studies in Humanities at the University of Edinburgh, one of our Saha member institutions. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about this role and drew you to take this on this role on the on the board of Yash and also what have you learned since uh, you've taken this role about uh, the field of humanities more widely?
1: I, uh, so I joined the board of IASH uh, quite a few years ago now, and it was at the invitation of uh, Susan Manning, who was then the director, our much beloved and much missed, unfortunately, Susan, she and I were having a meeting, uh, and it was actually to do with my role at the British Council. I'd gone to meet her about some events where I thought there could be joint interest between the british council and and uh, aya. And we just got talking in her her study um, that afternoon, and she gave me tea and we had a great chat, and I was just really interested in what she was talking about and anyway, we, we came to an agreement that there was some work we were going to do together and then for me, rather out of the blue, a few weeks later, I received an invitation to join the board of IAN, And I was delighted. I was slightly intimidated, I have to say. Susan herself was a, a great mind. Uh, she wore her intellect very lightly, but she was, she was quite extraordinary. And I knew that she and other members of, of the board were also quite extraordinary. And I felt that, well, you know, I'm not a PhD. I'm not a professor. What can I, what can I really bring? But as it was, you know, the IS board members at the time were all delightful and very welcoming. And I think I soon discovered that, you know, there was something to offer in terms of the international engagement that I was uh, that I was party to through the British Council. And I think also some of that real world experience of applied research. I think most of the colleagues in one way or another do apply their research. But I think the sort of breadth of what we can do at the British Council was of interest to a lot of the members. And I think they also recognised I did have that interest in, in knowledge exchange and, and thinking about how IASH could engage with the university more broadly, but certainly the city of Edinburgh, I think, a little bit more broadly. And having someone who wasn't coming at that from a purely academic background was, was useful, I think. And I, I'd say I IASH, we've done that really well uh, over the last few years, not just due to me, due to some of the fantastic staff, um, some of the engagement around the Dangerous Women Project, for example. And that, in terms of your second question about what I've learned, I think I have really learned to appreciate the breadth of what can be discussed under the, the umbrella of, of the humanities. I think I've, I'm constantly hearing about new things. I'm constantly being challenged to understand how the field of humanities is, is keeping up um, with the challenges of the wider world. So I think the field of digital humanities I'm too old, I think, to be considered digital native. So some of the things that the the fellows, um, the IASH scholars are doing in that field is quite extraordinary. I think some of the ways that the really transdisciplinary approaches you get within humanities, the real imagination of how problems should be addressed, how problems should be solved, uh, is, is always quite inspiring to me, to be honest. So I, I remember... a one of the events we used to have, I guess, pre-pandemic, a little bit more uh, regularly at the IA building, where board members would be invited in and we'd get short presentations from some of the scholars that were there at the time and just hearing people talking about, you know, mapping, uh, you know, sort of archaeological mapping technology, but it was being used to, you know, to talk about um, climate change resilience. Uh, Things like that are just always quite staggering to me. And I think Ayesh itself is, is, is such a haven of learning, but it's also not an ivory tower. It's so connected into real world issues. And I think that's the absolute best of the human. You know?
0: I absolutely agree with you. And I look at the work um, of the Institute through my work on Saha, but also personal interest. And it's, it's amazing what, um, what they have on, and the breadth of fellowship also, the, the topics that they support. You've mentioned the British Council already, and I wanted to ask you, you have uh, worked on research at the British Council for a while now, and of course the institutions covers a lot of uh, fields of activities, but I wanted to ask you, given what you've observed from the projects over the years, how do you think arts and humanities research and, and projects that are not necessarily academic, but wider projects can help us address uh, the big societal challenges that we're facing at the minute?
1: That's a, it's a good question. And it's very nice of you to say I've worked as head of research at the British Council for quite a while. That is indeed true. I've, overall, I've been at the British Council about 17 years, but I guess I've been working in the, the the research field in one way or another at the British Council for nine or 10 of those. So for me, I always have to remember And I occasionally have to be reminded that you know the British Council is not per se a research organisation. So we are not undertaking research at any time just for the sake of the knowledge and the the sort of enjoyment and pleasure of knowledge. So everything we do needs to be applied. Everything we do, we are 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 doing for a a purpose and and a a practicable purpose, whether that's to find out things internally that we can apply ourselves and the way we develop policy and strategy, or whether it's in terms of informing our stakeholders or some of the participants in our projects. So I think arts and humanities research, its when it comes to some of the big global challenges, and let's take climate change, which is timely, we're obviously talking about this just before COP, the British Council has a big piece of programming at the moment called the Climate Connection. It's obvious, I think, to anyone who really engages with climate change that while Scientific and technological um, research and innovation plays an enormous role in things like, you know, carbon capture and storage or better energy production or the way that, uh, you know, the way that our houses and homes are heated and run, for example. Huge amounts of what is needed in order to change have to stem from, from ourselves as, you know, human beings and as cultured human beings. And so it's arts and humanities research that I think can unlock some of those answers and solutions. And I think that point about culture is really important because, you know, I think, I think bringing in psychology and, you know, understanding what it is that makes people change their behavior, what do people respond well to is important. But even some of the underlying aspects of, you know, how we engage in the world how different cultures, different societies against the world is so deeply involved by their, their cultural history and background that if you forget that and you don't look into that and you don't apply research methodologies to that, then you won't make sustainable change. So there's an absolutely fascinating and to me completely new area of humanities that I was introduced to late last year, early this year, as part of a series of essays that I commissioned as part of our climate change project. And that introduced me to the energy humanities. And all my time at Ayash, I'd never heard of the energy humanities. But the author of this particular essay was talking about the fact that actually our energy, the way we use energy and the way we produce energy, massively affects the culture that you live in. And you see that in literature and you see that in film. And you need to be able to understand energy as something of the humanities as well as something of the sciences if you want to change it. There's, I think there's a new book out now, I think it might be a Jeremy Paxman book, and I confess I haven't read it yet, but I know he's talking about the, sort of the history and, of coal mining, particularly in England, I think. And you can't really, you can't separate out coal as uh, coal mining, and as something we do, people have done to heat their homes, a heavy industry, from how it impacted on whole societies and communities it's in certain areas of the country. And how that is ingrained in the way that those societies, those communities, those people see themselves, see their place in the world. So I think if we separate out all of our arts and humanities research from our scientific research, then you cannot possibly think about addressing these sort of big societal challenges such as climate change or or COVID, for example. We always have to be aware that human beings are, are complex creatures who won't just respond to a technological innovation, and I do think and I I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but I think the point about arts and humanities research and practice, the ability to imagine and to think differently, is absolutely crucial again in addressing the major challenges that we're in. And I I think most arts and humanities research would, would demonstrate that time and time again. I have worked on lots and lots of different types of research and I've worked with lots of different countries and communities in order to do that. But I think the best Research that we do, and the best results we get that we can then apply in our, our programming and our de- um, policy development work, will have as much a range as possible of disciplines within them, and will be always transdisciplinary in
0: their approach. You've mentioned COVID-19, which is uh, something that we're still facing day to day at the minute. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how this has influenced work that is done at the minute in humanities, but also if it might um, leave any traces in the future of the field? Well, I don't know. I'm sure it's only terribly
1: foolish people that try and predict the future. Uh, but I'll, I'm happy to have a go. I think, I mean, in terms of impact we see and influence of the COVID-19 pandemic, absolutely, I think it's amplified a lot of things that were already happening, I guess. You know, it's public discourse about trust in science. You know, it was really thrown onto centre stage by COVID-19 and we see that today and we see that ongoing. And so I think, for me, the need for good science Wherever it's coming from, good research is as needed as it ever was before, and probably more so. I think the opportunities, the need for collaboration, genuine international collaboration, have again been highlighted, And I think that the need for you know, sensible intercultural connections as well have been shown up by, by COVID-19. And the fact that people have striven to do that despite the massive restrictions placed on them, you know, in terms of cooperation, in terms of travel and working together. I think people with curious minds will always try to reach out to others and and collaborate. And I guess that brings me on to the next point about the future. The COVID-19 accelerated something that was already happening, I think, in terms of our ability to engage digitally. What isn't yet clear, I think, is exactly what impact that has had on the area of work you know, I'm interested in professionally, which is how we build trust and engagement between peoples around the world. You know, I know there is research that suggests that in conflict-affected situations, some of these computer-mediated conversations and computer-mediated interactions are actually quite helpful in terms of building trust between parties who don't necessarily agree with each other because you don't have that physical space in which people can congregate in tribes you don't necessarily have the sort of sense of, you know, intimidation by another group physically if you are all engaging in this very flat online way. But the flatness perhaps is a problem in that you don't necessarily get as much of a genuine human interaction as you would want in terms of building those long-term sustainable relationships. So I think we don't yet know quite what the impact will be. We have some research that was published earlier this year that looked at some of the impacts of, of COVID on, on cultural relations. And we looked at two areas in particular, the, the impact on festivals and, and the impact more broadly on the arts and, um, and on science collaboration. And I think it threw up some of the things you would expect. One in particular, that there's a, a lot of smaller organisations actually turned out to be more fleet of foot in terms of how they could pivot online and continue to engage their communities quite effectively whereas some of the the major organizations and in this I'm talking about you know big festivals and so on just weren't able to do that and the argument I think is they're not used to having to innovate in quite the same way they're not as creative and imaginative as perhaps they could be Um, and I think there is absolutely a truth in saying that in terms of people being able to engage in conferences and seminars and so on not to have to travel, not to have to deal with visas, not to have to do all of those things, opens up some of these intellectual and academic experiences to a much, much wider audience. And even though there absolutely isn't digital equality in the world, there are significant levels of digital reach globally. And, you know, far, far more people than before are able to access, um, you know, a podcast or, you know, an an online webinar or something like that via their mobile phone then obviously you could possibly get into one room. So I, I do think that there is, there has been an equalization of access to intellectual content and engagement. Obviously what has, you don't then get from that is the sort of level of, of networking and interaction that we had before. And what I'm interested in looking in in the future is saying if, if we stay with this or if we stay with the sort of hybridized model um, of these sort of events, does our interaction suffer? Does our engagement with other people suffer? Do we have to look at how we build relationships very differently? And will you actually end up with the sense that the privileged few will will get to do the sort of physical and face-to-face interactions? It will be kept open for a much wider audience, which is good, but actually it's quite. you'll end up with a, a deeply two-tiered system that you didn't have before. So I think there's a lot of research to be done on that space, that I'm quite looking forward to.
0: So you've already led me to my next question, which was going to probe a little bit more into international cultural relations, because as far as I've uh, gathered, you have a very strong interest in the area. And of course, you're in a great position to look at this uh, as one of the aims of the of the British Council relates to international cultural relations very closely. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what arts and humanities can do in this area. What have you noticed over the years?
1: I, so arts and humanities are absolutely central to, to what we do in cultural relations and, and in our research as well. I think in terms of a cultural relations practice, what we're always interested in is how these things are applied. You know, what difference does it make to, to people on the ground? I am coming back to, Our point as an organisation at the British Council is about, you know, generating trust and engagement and building those relationships, people to people uh, between the UK and the rest of the world. And again, if you think of human beings as creatures of culture, then then you have to include the arts and humanities uh, within that. So it's, it's within our programming because we work in education, we work in arts and culture, we work in areas like cultural heritage and so on. Um, We obviously work in in language learning and teaching and assessment. So it's there within the the sectors in which we work. But I I think it does trickle through in terms of our approach to everything, because we are human centred, I think, as an organisation. So obviously, we do work with institutions and we do work with infrastructures. And often that's where we might want to be looking to influence and drive change. But I think fundamentally, you don't you can't do the sort of work we're doing without engaging with the arts and humanities. So whether that's about, you know, introducing different artists to each other to generate some sort of intercultural dialogue and practice, or whether it's supporting people who work in education policy to learn from each other and to, to share experiences and to share ideas about what works, or whether it's looking at, you know, the role of girls and women in sport in sub-Saharan Africa, all of those things have to have, I think, a strong arts and humanities angle to them, just naturally, in a way. So I think without, I would say, without the arts and humanities, no, there is no international cultural
0: I agree with you. I actually did a little bit uh, of work on, on that um, also during a, a postdoc that was looking mostly at EU policy around colonial heritage. And uh, we were looking through the lens of heritage diplomacy, actually. It I think the ideas that we had around building a decolonial take on heritage diplomacy were very much in tune with the notions of international cultural relations, which I think are becoming more and more predominant at the minute at an international stage, especially in the eve of COVID and how this has highlighted the way that science needs to collaborate at international level to drive this massive changes that we need.
1: Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I'm lucky, just come away from the 2021 Conference of ICRA, which is the International Cultural Relations Research Alliance. And that's led by British Council in the UK and IFA in Germany. And that's, that brings together cultural relations practitioners and academics from around the world. We had three great keynotes last week, um, and we've had a number of sort of smaller discussions this week And tomorrow is the final session, the closed session for ECRA members, looking at how a lot of what we've learned actually relates to to policy. We took a look in particular about issues of inequality, uh, issues of cooperation. And obviously, things like decolonisation, decoloniality approaches came up within that. And in parallel, at the British Council, we're doing some work that is actually we're trying to ask ourselves the question. How do you do this? How do you practice international cultural relations if you're also committed to decolonisation and anti-racism, sort of being actively involved in those spaces, perhaps rather than just passively? So if you're an organisation that we set up when we were, that has, has very, very strong values, I think, in terms of building trust and engagement, but at the same time has a, a clear mandate and mission in terms of, of talking about the UK, how can you do that from a perspective of decolonization? Is it to do with power relations internally? Is it to do with the power relations you have with the stakeholders? And for me, working in research, obviously, it's that central point about how we know, how we go about approaching knowledge, the knowledge that we value and how we gather that and how we amplify that is, is absolutely central. And it's something I wrestled with quite a lot because obviously, I've, you know, all of my studies have been done within the sort of the Western, the European model of how you generate knowledge, how you assess knowledge and so on. So I think I still probably have too rigid an approach of understanding what good research and what good knowledge production looks like. So I'm trying at the moment to challenge myself a little bit in order that I can then effectively challenge some of the stakeholders that I work with really to open up. The knowledge that we have because one obviously great blessing of working somewhere like the British Council and actually in, in IASH and other university settings as well is you're so blessed with the range of people that you're hearing from and the range of different diverse opinions and, and sort of knowledge sets that people bring with them and I think we haven't yet quite cracked that as an organisation in terms of what we've put front and centre in those terms.
0: Well it's a very difficult challenge to face and I think you're not the only organization that is dealing with that at the minute but some very important and big steps ahead I think I've noticed in the in the last years it's good to
1: be having the conversation I think is the point I I think it's been silent for too long I think now we just really need to, to tackle it head on
0: In terms of your work at the British Council, one project that I I noticed, and it was very interesting to move into our last uh, part of the podcast, was the Next Generation program, which uh, was focused on uh, young people across the world, and it tried to map their views on different subjects, what they hope and what their aspirations are for the future. And I was wondering if you've noticed some, some trends across the world that are similar for our young generation. And then leading on from that, if the case study from the UK has highlighted any aspects that are particular to young people from the UK?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked me about Next Generation, because it is absolutely one of my my favorite project, and I was in fact in a meeting early this morning looking at some suppliers for a new next generation that we are doing in Indonesia. So yes, there absolutely are trends across next generation. So the program itself started back in 2009. My my colleagues in Pakistan were brilliant and came up with a really good piece of research that was, was absolutely fresh at the time in the country and was also absolutely used really successfully in terms of impact on youth policy So we then relaunched the project of the Global Programme in 2015 and we started with the UK because the point of Next Generation was to look at aspirations of young people and to understand where they're coming from, but often when their country is going through a time of change or when there's a sort of maybe a confluence of events. So we did Colombia, where we, we looked at young people's role in bringing about the peace process. We did South Africa, where it was 20 years after apartheid. What did South African youth think about the social contract that was supposed to have been generated? Was it really holding true for them? And let's take another one. We, we did one in Germany looking at really the idea that Germany was sort of a leader in Europe, but was, was facing, had been facing a lot of challenges to do with its policy on immigration, the potential rise of the far right and so on. But wherever we've done the studies, there definitely are similarities in what it is that young people want to be heard on. And probably the two most prominent ones are around education. So I'd say whether it's Colombia or Turkey or Vietnam or Kenya or Italy, you will find young people saying the education systems are not fit for purpose. And it's because young people themselves don't get to you know engage in the design of of um, education policy it's generally you know they're designed by people who may well have a lot of expertise but are a lot older than them and possibly don't really see the way the world is changing so even in a country like germany which i think you know has pretty good pisa scores and where almost all the young people said they were satisfied with the education that they'd received they felt it was of high quality they were concerned it wasn't really fit for the way the world was going you know, they don't get a sense they're learning about digital skills. They don't get a sense that they're being prepared for the world of work. And they don't get a sense they're being prepared for the other challenges that they face in life. And that's absolutely echoed around the world. Now, you could argue, as I suspect people would, that that's because education systems are essentially kind of one size fits all the way they're designed at the moment and so young people feeling they're not being prepared properly and there there's too much focus on exams it's it's not individualized enough there isn't room for creativity you know there can't be that there's no way of designing the education system but I'm not sure that's true and I do think it's worth listening to young people saying well we're fairly clear what we want we're not telling you we don't want to learn Pretty much everyone you speak to massively values education. They are desperate for it. They really, really want it. But they want it to be useful. They want it to be stimulating. They want to understand why they're doing it. So I think that's one really common trend. And the other one is about participation in society, very broad, and in particular democratic participation. And a really strong sense of young people on the whole having being deeply small PE political having a real interest in the world around them, you know, having real interest in issues around climate change or the uh, flows of migrants and refugees around things like COVID, um, but also around war and instability, the rights of women and minorities and so on. And then often that translates into they are interested in their local communities as well. But there seems to be this bit in the middle that's missing. They are less likely to vote and they are deeply cynical about it. And their sense, I think, is that they are not really listened to. And that when politicians engage with young people, it's quite tokenistic. Uh, it tends to happen maybe just around election cycles. It doesn't happen the rest of the time. That they're dismissed as young and foolish. And I think we can all see that. You just need to look at the, the media half the time. Young yeah. people raising their voices are frequently dismissed. And, and I think, finally, this sense of it, the institutions don't change. The institutions seem to recognise there's an issue with young people not voting but their only answer is to say, well, you must come and vote. There's no sense of flexibility within the institutions to move towards young people, even recognising that they are passionate and that they are informed and they want to be active citizens, but they're not always been given the opportunity to. Again, that's, that's common in pretty much every every country we speak to. And I think that's a real shame because one thing you, you often see is massive levels of optimism from young people. But the The slightly sad thing is quite often it wanes as they get older. So we often look at the sample age range we tend to use tends to be around 18 to 30. And you see high levels of optimism from the younger age group when you ask them to imagine their futures. And even if they're living in desperately poor circumstances or they haven't had the access to education that they want, they imagine very, very different futures. They have huge creativity and innovation and they are utterly determined to make their lives Work the way they want them to, but you do often see that the uh, the optimism level kind of wanes as they get more towards that second cadre. You know, they get into the twenty five to thirty age group, and that is that's awful. That's really sad, and I think that you know would urgently need to be addressed. And coming to your point about the UK, that that's definitely true about the UK. Same thing. You have I think fifty percent was a few years ago now. Fifty percent, though, of young people in the UK said they weren't particularly satisfied with their education. They didn't feel that it set them up for the world of work, and it didn't feel that it set them up to navigate their way through life. They felt they should, they wanted to learn about politics, they wanted to learn about finance, and you know how to manage their lives. And they didn't get any of that. They didn't learn how to pass um, the sort of the amount of data sources they were getting. So they're really aware of things like fake news and echo chambers, but they feel they would like to learn more about it. So I think, yeah, young people in the UK, they have a huge amount in common with their peers. And one thing that's lovely for us as an organisation is being able to share that and enable, enable them to talk to each other. We brought together earlier this year young people from all of the European countries where we've done Next Generations before. And we brought them together with some sort of policy experts and policy leaders from the EU as well to talk about some of these issues. So we had UK, Ireland, Germany, Italy and Poland. Um, all coming together to share what they have in common and then to share their determination for, for change.
0: That's very interesting. And I hope, you know, there will be some significant impact on that because there's obviously room for improvement. And I think some of the things that I've noticed recently in the education sector do address some of these challenges uh, that you've raised. And there are different efforts of improving what is now available as, as we go forward. But just to think about young people a little bit more, I wanted to ask you, if you had a young person in front of you who is just considering their education today, what advice would you give that person? And also the second imaginary or real person that you might have around you that is just about to finish their studies and they're about to graduate and think of their next steps what advice would you have for these two people so this it is a
1: little hard for me because I don't have children obviously a lot of my friends do but a lot of my friends children are rather younger than me so I kind of watch a lot of the parents wrestling with these choices I don't get to talk to young people themselves about it I guess in terms of young people considering educational choices obviously I'd say this as a a research person but you know do your research and don't feel this is it and I'm absolutely living proof of that. So if, if that helps you at all, I went to university at the age of 18 because that's, that's what you did. My dad was the first in his family to go to university and that's the path he'd followed. My mum actually didn't. My mum didn't go into higher education until she was an adult, but I did. It was expected in my school. You just you maybe took a gap year, I went to university and I didn't really know what to do. I knew lots of things that I liked and that was kind of problematic to me actually when I went into education because I, I ended up jumping around quite a lot. So I suppose in considering educational choices, I was like, have a think, talk to people, get advice, you know, be really proactive and consider what it is that I've never watched this program. But, you know, the lady that tells you to do all your tidying up, you know, this idea about what sparks joy. I do think that's really important just because you go off and do one particular subject and you think, you know, that's what I want to get a job in it. I can tell you that that may not happen. So I do think, think about what sparks joy in your life. Think about what is interesting to you because there is a massive world of education out there. There is a huge amount of research and you can be like me and maybe not quite get it right the first time around, but you can then go back to it. And I would definitely suggest wherever you are in life that continuing to learn is absolutely crucial. It's kind of what keeps you alive. So, you know, don't rush into it. Don't listen too much to your parents. Well, people who were trying to give you, give you advice. My dad got me to start an economics A-level. I lasted a term and I found it very painful and I switched to Latin, which I really enjoyed and I, I still do and I'm still fascinated by the classics. I'm rather less fascinated by economics, I'm afraid to say. He thought it was a good idea and it would get me a good job. But you're too young to be thinking about that. Do what keeps you interested. And the fields in humanities that we've just spoken about are opening up and opening up and there is there's just there's a whole world out there is what I would suggest to younger people I'd probably say something similar to those about to graduate I guess it depends to a degree what they're graduating in but again I graduated and I I remember this I mean it's you know it's more than 20 years ago but and and I suspect life is probably a little bit simpler back then as well but I left and I carried on doing the job I'd been doing a part-time job you know, for my university years, I worked in a record shop and I just went into working full time in a record shop. Well, because I was really passionate about music and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Various friends had gone off into, you know, management consultancy. I was pretty sure I didn't want to do that. I was trying to work out whether I wanted to do a master's and wanted to stay on. And then like I said my life went off on this rather circuitous route. Some people, I think, have got a real sense of ambition and purpose and they know what they want to do, and I salute them. I really do. I I sometimes wish I had that level of certainty and purpose in my life, Um, but I think there's nothing wrong, actually, with particularly when you're in your 20s, letting the waves take you where they do for a while. Even if you plan your journey to the nth degree, it may not well work out the way you think it will. So I think allowing yourself to experience different bits of work, different parts of the world, whatever it is you think you can do. I look at my sister, for example, um, I hope she won't mind me referencing this. She had a very strong sense of what she wanted to do. And she graduated from her undergraduate degree and she went straight into a master's and was absolutely determined she was going to go and work in sort of arts management. And, you know, a lot of people think like that. And those jobs are quite hard to come by. And she threw it all in. She went down to London, had the same problem. And eventually a friend of her said, oh, you know, there's a job going at my place. Come and work in that area. And that was to do with urban planning. And Joe had no interest in that at all. And yet somehow found a niche within that. And she got really, really interested in the idea about greening cities and environmental spaces and cities and making cities better places and more sustainable. And she got really into this sort of urban food growing. And, you know, again, about 20 years later, that's what she does. And she has real expertise in that now she would not have plotted that out you know as she was graduating absolutely not but she does it she loves it she's really good at it and so I just think yeah let those waves buffet you for a little bit as long as you can and I think often a path will emerge that's a terrible mixed metaphor I'm so sorry but uh, uh <laughs> but yeah that's, so that's probably where I was
0: <laughs> no 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 it was great <laughs> I would definitely echo that because both myself and my sister had a similar convoluted, let's say, trajectory. But yeah, ending up in places where we're actually grateful to um, have had the different experiences that um, we've had. Thank you very much, Christine. It's Absolutely. been wonderful talking to you today, and what an amazing array of subjects we've managed to cover. <laughs>
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure,
0: Christina. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Saha conversation with Christine Wilson. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post about it on social media and subscribe to be the first to know when new episodes are released. You can follow us on Twitter at Saha underscore voice and on Facebook at SahaVoice. Thanks again. I'll see you next time.